So if you were around towards the end of last year, you'll know we started a series through the book of Luke. We started, well, sort of at Luke chapter one. We did it in a slightly different order. We went all the way through from Luke chapter one to Luke chapter six, and then we got to the end of the year, and we've looked at other things so far in 2022. But if you know a little bit about Luke's gospel, you'll know that it gets to Luke chapter six and you get what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew's gospel and it's in Luke's gospel. And it's this incredible bit of Jesus' teaching about the nature, about the purpose of what his kingdom looks like, of what it means to be alive in his reign and his glory and his guidance. But Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel start the Sermon on the Mount with this interesting thing, this little set of phrases called the Beatitudes. Um, and I'll, I'll let you into a secret, like for, for the last, well, at least the first 18, if not probably a lot longer years of my life, I had no idea what the Beatitudes were. Like people just used to in church sometimes say, oh, that's in the Beatitudes, isn't it? And I genuinely thought for a long time this was some sort of dance group. I thought this sounds like something that America's Got Talent would, would, would have on it, the Beatitudes, something like that. Well, it turns out, so I've discovered more recently that that is not what the Beatitudes are. I'm so sorry. The Beatitudes actually are this set of phrases, statements that Jesus makes about what it means to be blessed, about what it means to live in the blessing of God. And so we're going to look this summer across the summer months at every single one of these statements. They are beautiful, they are slightly uncomfortable, if we're honest, they are challenging to us, but they're also full of richness and beauty and things for us to explore. The theologian John Stott says that you can never actually get to the bottom of the Beatitudes because there's always more. And so we want to do things just very slightly different over the next weeks. We want to explore these through theology and through sermons in the way that we usually do. But we also want to open the door to some other ways of learning together, to creativity and beauty. And we're going to be using the work of a guy called Stu G. I mean, isn't that like the coolest name that anyone's ever had ever? Um, Anyone ever heard of the band Delirious? Yeah, if you're of a certain generation, uh, you, you probably, like me, gave your life to Delirious as a teenage boy. I gave my life to Jesus, but I also may have slightly given my life to Delirious. Um, but their lead guitarist was this guy called Stuji, and when the band finished, he dedicated a number of years of his life to looking at the Beatitudes, particularly through the lens of theology and mission, but also through creativity and art to really open up people's hearts to what Jesus meant. And so I want to give a little plug at the start of this series that if you are an artist of any sort, if you're a dancer or if you're an, you paint or you sculpt or, or you um, write or whatever, musician, we would love to invite you to journey into this story with us. And Tom, our worship pastor, would particularly love to talk to you because we want to create spaces to experience, to look creatively at the Beatitudes too. So maybe you draw, maybe you sculpt, maybe you have some other ways of thinking creatively, in which case we'd we'd love um, to talk to you. 
But what we want to do is we, we want to get past sort of head knowledge. Because head knowledge is good, but I don't know if you've ever found yourself going to go away from church going, hmm, that was a really interesting point that the pastor made. And then basically going away and doing nothing. I mean, you never do that, obviously, I appreciate. But, but you know, that could happen. So we want this to go a little bit uh, deeper into our lives and to, to, to really help us look at truth, beauty, and goodness past our heads and to inspire us and to challenge us and, and even if I dare say it, to reorientate us a little bit to the kingdom. Because if I can just be brutally honest for, for a few minutes, the last couple of years around the world and particularly in our nation have been really tough, right? I mean, maybe it's just me, but being a Christian here has not been easy. And I'm not talking about whether or not we could meet or whether we had to wear a face mask. I'm not talking about that. But I mean the way that Christianity seems to have been portrayed out there. Whether it's like the way that we've got like messed up in these kind of fame and power structures. We've put like pastors up like celebrities. We've like just made way too big a deal of them and then we've watched spectacularly as their lives have crumpled under the weight of it and the churches have imploded. We've seen abuses of power. We've seen the church get massively and appropriately involved in politics and scandal. We've seen all sorts of things, crazy weird teachings. And maybe if, if, if I'm just honest, like I'm tired. Like, I am tired. I love our church. I love what God's doing. I love what God's doing here in the city. But I got too many friends saying I used to be a Christian, but I do not want anything to do with that anymore. And so as we look at the Beatitudes, what we're really doing is we're asking the question, what does the kingdom of God really look like? What did Jesus really mean when he said, follow me with your whole lives and your whole heart? And I hope it's going to help us in our city, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our schools to commit our lives again, or maybe even for the first time to follow him. So Jacinta's going to come and read from us. And we're going to go backwards and forwards between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel because both have accounts of the Beatitudes. But today we're going to be in Matthew's gospel, starting Matthew 5, starting at verse 1, if you've got it in front of you. The Beatitudes. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's Jesus. His name, his fame is spreading the crowds are gathering from all over the region around Galilee. And so he goes up on a hill to teach his disciples, to teach the crowds. And he starts with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom. Like, what on earth does Jesus possibly mean by a statement like that? It is so full of complication. How does it mean to be blessed if you are poor in spirit? How is the kingdom of God belong to people who are poor? Like, what is all this about? Well, that's what we're going to look at. So I don't know if you've ever encountered real physical poverty. Anyone ever seen something really desperate? When I was 18 years old, I had the privilege of going to live in Alexander Township in Johannesburg in South Africa. If you know anything about Joburg, it's, it's, a, it's a city which still to this day has lots of trouble, it's lots of division. And to the east of the city is an area called Santon. And Santon is actually on the whole an incredibly wealthy area. It has skyscrapers and all of those things. But to the side of it is this small slum township area called Alexander. You can see it on the screen. It's an area where during the apartheid years, black families were forced to go and live. It is overcrowded, it is dangerous. And most people live, uh, you'll see, in these one to two room little huts like that. If you can imagine one of those underneath the side of a huge brand new glass skyscraper. That's how people live. The sewers are overloaded. People bathe in the streets in, like one or, in little plastic buckets. There's very limited electricity, uh, access to healthcare services. It's a real place that is lacking. But it's also a place which you know if you've lived there for very long, which is a place where hope is in short supply. It's not just that physical things are without in Alexander Township, but so, so many young people get caught up in violence and drugs and crime. Like they've actually had to remove around Alexander Township, around all the roads around the outside, all of the traffic lights. Because if you were to stop your car at a traffic light, someone would walk up with a gun and remove it from you, and very often your life as well. Young men get caught up in drugs, they get caught up in alcoholism, because there just is this sense there that there is nothing better. There is no way better. Nothing is going to improve. And so prostitution, hopelessness, everything bounds upon these people. Maybe you've been somewhere else. I remember going to the slums of Tondo in Manila, other places in Africa. But the truth is, you don't even have to go that far to find that level of poverty. I remember the day that Laura and I arrived on the plane from the United Kingdom. And we, we drove up into Pasadena and towards our, our new home. And on one hand, I was like, Laura, can you believe it? Look at these neighborhoods. Look at the cars. Look at the trees. Isn't it so beautiful? Isn't that the house where Back to the Future was filmed once upon a time, right? Do, do you know this area? Isn't this amazing? And then like the next moment, looking out the other window and seeing someone begging on the side of the street, someone living in a tent or under a bridge. And I remember even that first day, my heart just being like torn in two, thinking like, how is this, both of these things possible in this, this moment? And as we bought our first bits of furniture and I got a desk for our house and I sat down at my desk for my first time and I thought about what a vintage church Pasadena might turn into being. The question that reverberated around my head was this, but how do the poor win from this? 
And it's not a good phrase, but it was like this moment inside my head that just said, a nice church in a beautiful building one day in a lovely neighborhood is not gonna be enough to see the entirety of God's kingdom come. How could the poor win out of what we're doing? Maybe you've experienced that level of poverty in your life. Maybe it's been part of your story. Maybe even today it's part of your life. How do we make ends meet? Will we have enough? You know, over the last years, I've tried everything I can to go and build relationships with those who live in our city streets. You know, from this door where we're standing, we've got within 10 minutes of here, some of the biggest, nicest mansions in the city. And we've also got 500 people who slept out last night and will sleep out tonight and the night after because they have no housing. And I've tried to spend some time, we ran Alpha with a community that lived near my house. We've been building relationships. And what you start to hear is not these, these, just these stories of kind of physical lacking, but you hear stories of abuse, of mental health, and of addiction. And they're complicated. But so often, deep down, they're stories of hopelessness, of aloneness, of seeing nothing better for the future than the things that already exist. You see, extreme poverty not only crushes your body, it crushes your spirit. And if you're here this morning and that's left the mark in your life, then we'd, we'd love to do something. We'd love to pray. We'd love to see God's healing. But then Jesus, he says this, blessed are the poor. What? Like how is that a state of blessing? It certainly doesn't sound like one, does it? But before we get to the answer to that, we need to think about the other part. Because Jesus doesn't just say the physically poor, he says in Matthew's gospel, the poor in spirit. Eugene Peterson, he says it like this. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. Anyone ever been at the end of their rope? Anyone at the end of their rope right now? If you've got small kids, you're probably like, I was there in the car on the way here this morning and I'll probably be there all day. You know, blessed are you when you hit rock bottom. And you don't have to have no money or no house to hit rock bottom. I wanna show you this little video of a guy called Sam. So I have a lot of experience with poverty of spirit. To me, I think the first manifestation of that was addiction when I was younger. From basically 17 to 22, there wasn't a drug or a drink that I wouldn't put in my body. I liked partying, but more than anything, I was chasing that fullness that came when I was high or when I was drunk. I ended up getting sober from drugs or alcohol when I was 22, and all of my addiction had been about trying to fill this hole inside of me. This feeling of sort of like emptiness or lack like something was missing. I grew up in LA and from a very early age was incredibly ambitious. After college, I went to Wall Street and I spent the next eight years sort of climbing the finance corporate ladder and doing that rather well. By the time I was 30, I was making millions and millions of dollars a year as a senior trader at one of the largest hedge funds in the world. I started to realize that basically the same thing was going on, that still something was missing, and I was trying to fill it, not with drugs and alcohol, but with money. Criteria for what 
you know, I wanted to do with my life was really all about me. Like, does this give me money? Does this give me status? Does this give me prestige? I don't know if you noticed what Sam said, and we'll pick up his story in a few minutes' time, but he was the, one of the richest guys in America, earning millions of dollars, and yet he said that he, all he'd managed to actually do in his life was to swap the addiction of drugs and alcohol with an addiction of the love of money. You can be poor in spirit and extremely wealthy. In 2016, uh, Laura and I uh, moved to a beautiful village called Hartley Whitney. Sound posh? It is very posh. This is what it looks like. This is the, the duck pond in the middle of the village. Um, and here's a picture of the, one of the, the four churches that Laura and I helped to pastor. Got the next slide. There it is, St. John's. And we, we moved there and, you know, in every, in every country they have these like lists of the top places to live. Um, and in England, this village and this little collection of villages always come out right at the very, very top of the list because they have these beautiful schools and this beautiful nature and countryside and it's really close to London and, and everybody's like on the surface incredibly posh and incredibly nice and they all sound like the queen and they all treat each other really nicely. There's another one. That's a thousand years old, by the way. Um, but when we got there, we realized quickly that things weren't great under the surface. In fact, that the levels of divorce were right at the top of any list in the country. That the levels of drug addiction were very, very high. Family breakdown, depression, anxiety, all of it was right there. And at first I couldn't realize, I couldn't work out, I couldn't put the two things together, but until we started to hear the stories, and often what would happen is that at six in the morning, the dads would get up and they'd get on a train and they'd go to London to their big shiny offices and they'd work till really late at night, leaving behind the wives and the children. And they had nothing to do and there was nowhere to go and so drug addiction, affairs, everything was rampant around the place. Eugene Peterson says, blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope whether that's mental health, whether that's some sort of addiction, whether it's like one of my best friends when I was 16 years old when he just could not see a future even though he was in this incredibly wealthy family and he committed suicide. Jesus dares to say, blessed are you, rich or poor, maybe even Christian or non-Christian, dare I say. As Dallas Willard says, blessed are you when you are a spiritual zero. It can be so overwhelming when we get to those places. And I wonder, again, maybe this morning, maybe you found your way online or you found your way into this building and that's your story. Whether it is through your health, whether it's through your finances, whether it's through the situations that you find yourself, but right this morning, you know like you are at the bottom. You are at the zero point. So what is blessing? How can Jesus dare to say that that is any sort of state of blessing? In fact, it's kind of worse than that. Because the word that's used for blessing is the word makarios, and the word makarios means happy. I mean, next week when we go out with our friends on the street, I suggest not starting with, you must be so happy to be here. 
Like, this must be so good for you that you have no money. Like, is it scandalous that Jesus would dare to say something like that? What does he really mean? Well, this is what Eugene Peterson helps us to get to the bottom of so succinctly and beautiful when he says this. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Stuji writes it, he says, blessed are you who are poor because this is what the blessing is. God is on your side at the bottom. God is on your side. God is at your side. God is alongside you in the bottom of the bottom. And his presence is available to you and it's available to me because when there's less of you, there is more of God and his rule. In 2008, um, I think, Life had gone pretty much exactly as I hoped it would go to that point. I'd grown up in these beautiful parts of the world. I'd gone to business school. I'd got my degree. I'd started my first companies. I'd met the wife, the the woman of my dreams, and I'd bullied her into marrying me and not let up until she put a ring on her finger. And we got our first uh, home together. And Every morning I would get in the car to drive the 20 miles down to where my company was based and I'd go down there and I'd sit in my nice office with my nice chair with all my staff team around me. And you know, things were good. Things were looked great on the surface. And then if you, you know anything about 2008, you know, this kind of small event happened in the world called the global economic crisis. Thank you, America. It was like a gift that we never asked for, but, but, but thank you for it. And, and my business, like so many of probably yours and around the world, suddenly went from doing extremely well to like big trouble immediately. The car industry in the United Kingdom shut down, manufacturing shut down, everything stopped. And I could see like we'd gone from making a really healthy profit to earning quite a lot of money to suddenly like this was, could be the end. Now, up until that point, every morning that I'd got in the car, I'd sort of, you know, 7.30 in the morning, drive down the freeway, maybe had the... I mean, I don't know, had the radio on or a podcast, listening to the Bible. It was pretty chill. It was pretty non-involved. And I'd sit there and have a nice day and go back listening to the the news in the car. But when the economic crisis hit, like everything changed. Like I was anxious. I was fearful. I was depressed. I couldn't sleep. So I'd get in the car in the morning and be like, honey, I love you. Goodbye. I get in the car and I would just start to drive and cry. I would get in the car and I would start to like sing. I would start to shout at God. I have no idea what the other people in the cars could hear or not hear. I I secretly hope that the insulation in the car was quite good. But like I was a mess. And for a couple of months, I just like used to get 20 minutes in the car. I'd be like, God, if you don't turn up today, if you don't provide for us today, my livelihood's gone. The people who we employ is gone. The reputation's gone. The business is gone. It's all over. Like I just used to just, all of it always come out once. Worship music, crying, shouting, like everything. And then I'd go to work for the day. And then at the end of the day, I'd like hold it together and get back in the car and it would all just come again. And I would 20 minutes to go back home up the freeway. Until I think after a couple of months, I got to this point where I realized I was like, this is it. Like, there's nothing more now. There's no way out of this. So I remember one morning just getting there and just saying to the Lord, like, there's nothing left. This is it. 
the final day. Thank you, God, for giving us this run with this business, but there's no way out from here. And so, Lord, I, I, I am a zero. I have nothing. I am at the end of my rope. And I remember in that exact moment, the Lord turning up in my car, not physically. But I remember the presence of the Lord falling so powerfully that I almost crashed the car as I was going down the freeway. And this sense of his overwhelming peace and blessing coming in that darkest moment And it wasn't that I felt God say, don't worry, Ben, I'm going to give you loads of money or I'm going to make you rich and famous or any of those things. It was just that in the middle of that darkest moment, suddenly I I understood what it meant to have empty hands and experience God's presence with me. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit because there is the kingdom of God. The greatest gift that God can ever actually give you is not a Ferrari, it's not a beautiful house, it's not a perfect family. The greatest gift that God has for you is his presence right there alongside you. And that's why Brennan Manning, he says that the decision for every Christian is this, it is to define ourselves radically as one loved by God to define yourself radically as one loved by God. Because how easy is it to define ourselves by lots of other things? I am as great as my looks, my body, my education, by my family, by the bank balance, by what I drive, by where I'm going on vacation later in the summer. I can define myself by all these things, but as Brennan Manning says, these are just false, fragile selves that sooner or enough we will figure out have no ability to hold us. Instead, we are invited to define ourselves simply as this. God is present and he loves us. Because this is the gospel, church. I mean, we like the idea of the gospel being like one day we're going to get to go to heaven and the streets are going to be gold and it's going to be fantastic and we're all going to have a wonderful time and there's going to be no sickness. And that sounds like a good thing. But that isn't quite what Jesus says. (laughs) Because this is what Jesus says. Now this is eternal life. And we're like, oh good, this is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent The gift in the blessing in the bottom of life when you hit zero is that God is right there alongside you. He is there to comfort you, to speak to you, to hold you, to love you, to tell you that he is right alongside you. You know, when I lived in Alexander Township one Sunday, somebody took me to church. And some of you will have had similar experiences in other parts of the world. And this was not like church with a big grand building they didn't even have any colored lights. I mean, is that even a thing? Like they didn't have no smoke machines, they had no massive band, like they didn't have anything. Just a couple of people, but the worship, the worship. I mean, it wasn't like we have in the West, you know this, dear Lord Jesus, we love you, we pour out our hearts, you're the best thing in the world. I better not sing too loud, somebody might hear me. I'll put my hand up, nope, no, nope, that's enough, right? wasn't like that. It was like, we've got nothing and we are letting loose 
because we have found hope. We are letting it all out because we have found what's real. We are letting it all out because we have found the savior of all things and he is right here with us. I have never encountered worship like I encountered in Alexander Township. That's why John Stott, he dares to say this. Being poor in spirit is actually a desirable quality. Now, be careful. I don't think he's saying, like, give away everything you have till you're literally lying in the street. I don't think he's saying, go find yourself a mental illness and just get you know, into a really bad place. I don't think he's saying that. But what he's helping us to recognize is that until we find out what it really means to be empty-handed, we will never find the fullness of the blessing, of the presence that God wants to say. When we get to say, I have nothing, when we honestly mean, I deserve nothing, and yet, and yet, God is right here, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, and I find that so hard. You know, like I'm the up and to the right guy. How's it this year? I don't know, but it's better than last year. You know, how are my kids? They're better than they were last year. How's the bank balance? It's gotta be better than it was last year. I want everything to go up and to the right. But I tell you what, church, I'm really sorry that is not the gospel. <laughs> it's not what happened to Paul. It's not what happened to Jesus. It's not what happened to the early church. In fact, there's this bit in Revelation about the church in Laodicea. And you know that bit? It's like, it's like the bit we use to criticize other Christians, generally. It's like this. You know, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But yet you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. As Ranaera Cantalamessa says, blessed are you because you've believed and you have nothing. You know, I try so hard to run for leisure, for treasure, for pleasure, for health. Like if I can get all of those things in the right order in my life, then everything is gonna be absolutely fantastic. And yet we forget that's often not where the presence of the Lord is. It's not where the blessing of the Lord is. It's not where the calling of the Lord is. The calling of the Lord is to actually stand with nothing and say, here I am, I'm totally empty handed. I've got absolutely nothing. But would you come? And here's the beauty is that this is Jesus' story too. For you know, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we may become rich. The psalmist says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I know this is so hard. Like we'd much rather come to church and just say, hey, God wants to fill up your bank account. Hey, God's got like perfection for your life. But, but here's where it really is a blessing. Is that when you, when I get to the bottom, when we actually get to a place of surrender, it unlocks something. It opens something that can overwhelm and change everything about everything. I want you to show you the second part of the story, what happened to Sam when he got to that place. So I have a lot of experience with poverty of spirit. We'll to me, I think the first manifestation of that was addiction when I was younger. Ooh, do we have the second part of that story? 
Okay, don't worry if you haven't. I'll tell you the story. So Sam's bosses offer him $5 million every year to stay on Wall Street. And yet he says, I don't like the person that I am becoming. And so what he actually does is he quits Wall Street and he moves back to LA and he starts this charity called Every Table, full of the Holy Spirit. And the goal of Every Table is to basically give healthy, nutritious meals to people who live in parts of LA that have nothing who have a life expectancy that's literally a decade less than most of us who are here this morning because they have no access to healthy meals or healthy food, they can't afford it. And his charity, what they do is they actually package up these beautiful, freshly made meals and they sell them for like $5 per meal and they deliver them all over the city. And we're actually in talks with him about maybe having the first ever one on this side of, of, of LA right here in, in our basement with Providence at the moment. You know, when I was in 2008, the Lord broke my heart and, and I was done. But you know, that day I got in the car, actually it wasn't the end. Because as the Lord met me in that car, amazingly, we survived that day. And we survived the day that came after and the week that came after that, to the point actually where the business did become very successful. Where the point where we actually did fulfill the dreams and the visions we had. But I tell you what, to the day that I finally left the business five years later, I never forgot. I never forgot that I didn't do it. I never forgot that this was God's story and not my story. I never forgot that this was a gift of grace and blessing and it was not my genius. Because I think that's what we find when we get to the bottom is that that's where we meet the Holy Spirit that he comes to set us free and actually he plants within us a new story, a new life, a better life. The kind of life which is the story of Jesus to fulfill the things that Jesus did on the earth. That's why Jesus says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And we're like, great, you mean for like blessing and like power and might? No, why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim this, the year of the Lord's favor. I don't believe you have to be physically poor to encounter the Lord. I don't believe you have to have a massive problem with addiction or mental health, but I do believe that for every single one of us, there is an invitation of empty-handedness, of spiritual zero-ness, at which point the Lord can come, can do something wonderful, transformational. I'm gonna finish with these words of an old hymn that you might know. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We stand.